You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Promise of a Savior is the title of our Advent series. And uh, last week we looked at chapter 3. Sean took us through chapter 3 of, of Genesis. And, but this week we'll be looking at chapter 49. And the, if you're taking notes, the, the title of today's message is going to be The Last Shall Be First. The Last Shall Be First. And we'll be looking at Genesis 49. But as I said, we'll start in Luke chapter 2 as well. Last week I was listening to some of the latest Christmas songs that have come out this year. You know, looking for something interesting looking for something new. And I know for most of you, you're, you're happy just to sing the same 10 Christmas carols every year, and you're, that's completely satisfied, fa-la-la-la-la, out the door, and you're just like, that's fine with me. But, you know, I'm the worship pastor, so I'm always keeping my eye out for, you know, something new, something fresh, you know, that gets us back to the heart of Christmas and what it's all about. And last week, you know, we, we sang that song, Preparium Room. It's a song we introduced the, the year before, and you know, it just really helped us focus in on what is, what is important in this time of year to prepare room for the Lord in the midst of the chaos that's Christmas many times, to prepare Him room. You know, as the chorus said, prepare Him, let the King of glory enter in. Prepare Him room. Well, I came across this song as I was listening through these various songs that come out. I'm on all these email lists and they send you, everybody comes out with a new Christmas album around this time. And this song was really good. I really liked it. It was unique, a great chorus. But we came to the third verse and the lyric went like this We didn't see it coming. The story of redemption, what started in a manger, ended in an empty grave. You're like, well, what's wrong with that? We didn't see it coming, the story of redemption. What started in a manger ended in, ended in an empty grave. And in the context of the song, it was great, a great lyric. But immediately, you know, in the context of me studying all week for today's sermon, immediately my mind went, but they did see it coming. Do I even agree with this lyric? You know, but they, they did see it coming. As we saw last week in Genesis chapter 3, the third chapter of the Bible, right after the creation of mankind, the plan of salvation had already been put into motion. The story of redemption had begun, had already begun. And Jesus in Luke chapter 24, if you know that story, opens the eyes of those two men on the, on the road to Emmaus in Luke chapter 24, verse 27, where we read, and beginning with Moses and the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself, the promise of the Savior. They should have seen it coming. Jesus said, you should have seen it coming. Let me show you. And this reminded me of two people in the New Testament that did see the promise of the Savior coming and rejoiced to see it fulfilled in their lifetimes. And we find them in Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 25. If you're there with me, Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 25. And uh, we read there in, in verse 25, Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. Now, just stop there for a minute and look at that word consolation. Maybe you want to underline it. The rabbis referred to the Messiah as the consoler or as the comforter of Israel. So what we read here is Simeon waiting for the promised Savior, the one who would bring consolation to Israel. And we go on and read in there in verse 26. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit 
that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the spirit into the temple. I love that phrase. He came in the spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him, according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people. Israel. What an amazing Christmas gift there for Simeon. And then we, we read on in verse 36 about Anna. And there in verse 36, it begins, And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until, widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day, and coming up at that very hour, that very hour that Jesus was brought in, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. All who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. The Messiah, the Savior of whom Moses and the prophets had spoken of. He was now here. He was Jesus. It was not a surprise to them at all. It was not a surprise. They saw it coming, but a fulfillment of a long-awaited promise. You know, there's so many surprises at Christmas time, you know, under the Christmas tree, you know, or the parties, they go to office parties, you know, what lies beneath that colorful wrapping paper? Is it what I wanted? Is it what I asked for? You know, there's those white elephant gift parties. I, maybe you've been to them before. I'm a bit jaded, I think, from white elephant parties. Many years ago, when I was still living in Hungary, we had this... Uh, Christmas party for a bunch of missionaries in that area, and one of the white elephant gifts was a half-eaten Snickers bar. I was not impressed. What made it worse was that the guy had received that same gift the year before. And I was wondering, how long has that half-eaten Snickers bar been traveling around eastern Hungary? So I'm a bit jaded, but, you know, the promise of a Savior fulfilled in Jesus was not a surprise. It was not, but a gift long foretold by Moses and the prophets. A gift we didn't even ask for, but most of the world was not even looking for, but we desperately needed. It wasn't that we didn't see it coming, but as Romans chapter 1 tells us, we did not even see fit to acknowledge God. And this is what our Advent series is all about, looking back at the promise of a Savior and the providence of God to save his people, to acknowledge those who did not acknowledge him and his, in his eternal love for us, provide a way of salvation, a hope, a true hope for our future. And in our study today, we're going to be looking at Genesis chapter 49. So if you want to jump back there to Genesis chapter 49, if you're not already there, uh, we're going to continue to trace God's sovereign plan that culminates in the cross and with you and I being finally set free from the bondage of sin and death. Turn me right there in verse uh, chapter 49. Our focus today is going to be in verses 8 through 12 uh, and the blessing of Judah through whom the Messiah, the consoler of Israel would come. But before we get there, I think we need to get a little context that will help set the stage for our study this morning. In Genesis 48, we read there in the beginning that Jacob has become sick. And here at the end of Genesis, we see that Jacob and all his sons have moved to the land of Egypt, you know, following that epic journey of God's provision and divine plan that happened through Joseph. 
And so in the first few verses of Genesis 48, we've, we see Joseph. He brings his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, to Jacob for their blessing. And we'll get back to that a bit later because it'll fit into our narrative. But in chapter 49, we see Jacob now knowing that his time to die is near. And he calls his sons to him to bless each and every one of them. We read in verse 1 that Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together, that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. And then right away, you know, we see there in verse 1 that this is going to be, this is not going to be a, an ordinary blessing. He says, Gather yourselves together, that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. And the New King James Version, if you have that one, says that I may tell you what shall befall you in the last days. The NIV says that I can tell you what will happen to you in days to come. And all of these translations, they introduce us to the fact that God is about to speak prophetically through Jacob things that will not only affect his sons and his son's generations, but will affect the world as we know it. This is the first prophecy spoken of by a man in the Bible. The prophecy we looked at in Genesis chapter 3 last week was God speaking directly to Adam and to Eve. But this is the first declared prophecy through a man in the Bible. And we should not let uh, the significance of those two names there in verse 2 go by either because it says there, Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. Now, we know the, na the name Jacob means heel snatcher or means supplanter. And if you know the story of, of, uh, of Jacob, how he was born, he, his, son, his brother Esau was born first, but he was born second, grabbing onto the heel of his brother on the way out. And so his mother called him heel snatcher or supplanter. And he lived, unfortunately, up to that name. He was a thief. He was a conniver. He was always looking for that angle. And if you know a little bit of his history, you know that this name really fit him well. But Israel, on the other hand, means God prevails. This was the new name that was given to Jacob after he wrestled with the angel of God in Genesis chapter 32. God prevails. And so Jacob says, my sons, you are my sons and I, I have made bad decisions. My life choices were not the best example for you to follow, but God prevails. I used to be that thief but God prevails. Then we use that phrase sometimes ourselves that, yeah, that was the old me. That was, yeah, that was the old Mike. That was my BC days, right? We say that. That was our story. But isn't it good that God prevails? I had an old name, but now I have a new name. I had an old nature, but I, I have a new nature. I'm careful, of course, to keep this phrase in its, in its neutral sense, in its neutral tense, you know, God prevails. God prevails because God has prevailed on the cross for all of us. He has prevailed on the cross for me. And he's prevailing in our lives today. And he will prevail in the future. We're new creations in Christ this morning. We have new names. And when Jacob says, listen to, your, to, listen to Israel, your father, he is setting that tone for what's, what's coming after. You know, I'm sure he felt that God was about to speak things, important things into the lives of his sons through him. 
Now, we're not going to look at all of the sons and all of their prophecies. We're, our main concern is going to be Judah, starting in verse 8. But I do think it's important for our narrative this morning to take a brief look at some of those other sons. First of all, we have Reuben in verse 3, who's the firstborn and slated to be the next head of the family and receive the honor of the one who is the firstborn. He had that birthright. We read there in verse 3, Reuben, you are my firstborn with my might and the first fruits of my strength. Preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power, unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence. Because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it, and he went up. It says he went up to my couch. So here we see that Reuben has fallen. He's, he falls as the one who was intended to be the head of the family, the one to inherit the leadership of the family. And Jacob does not pass the birthright on to him. In Genesis 35, we read what Reuben, that he slept with his father's concubine in his father's own bed. And, and then in verse 4 in the ESV, you shall, it says, you shall have no preeminence. You shall not have preeminence. And if you have a King James or NIV, it says, you will no longer excel. And unfortunately, this would be the truth for Reuben. He would no longer excel. No judge, no prophet, no king would ever come out of the tribe of Reuben. But the birthright, the headship of the family, did not fall to the next two sons in line, Simeon and Levi. We go on and read, Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. O my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob, and I will scatter them in Israel. They too seem to have a real cruel and violent streak. In Genesis chapter 34, you could give us details into that cruelty that followed as they avenged their sister Dinah. We do know that the priesthood came out of the tribe of Levi, though, the Levites. They would be, the Lord would be their inheritance, as the Bible tells us, and they would be the ones to minister to the Lord and to his people in the temple day and night, administering the sacrifices and leading the worship. But here we come to verse 8, and to the one who does receive the blessing of the birthright, at least the birthright as it relates to the leadership of the family and would ultimately be the tribe through which the Messiah, Jesus, would arise. But before we get there, before we, we look at verse 8, let me ask you a question. Of all the brothers, of all the brothers, who would you think the Messiah would come through? Who do you think is kind of the logical choice? Who do you think, if you look at all 12 brothers and all the stories in Genesis, most of us would probably say, well, it should have been Joseph, right? Shouldn't the Messiah have come through Joseph? Doesn't seem, seem the one who's the most worthy? And for those who have studied through Genesis know that Joseph is kind of, you know, he's held up as a type of Christ, a, a foreshadowing of future redemption, rightfully so. In Joseph, we see the seed of Abraham. We see the seed of the woman whose name has been made great, who's been exalted to the right hand of power, who has been made fruitful in the land of his affliction, as Genesis 41 tells us, to the point of blessing all the families of the earth in the midst of an awful famine. Genesis goes on to say, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain because the famine was severe all over the earth. He seems like the logical choice, right? Well, Psalm 78 gives us some interesting insight. It says, you know, Psalm 78 begins kind of like as a historical rendering, basically, of the history of Israel. And then it becomes very messianic in nature. And if you want to read it at home, that'd be great. Psalm 78. But we get some interesting insight there in verse 67 and 68. It says, 
He rejected the tent of Joseph. He did not choose the tribe of Ephraim, but he chose the tribe of Judah, Mount Zion, which he loves. It seems that God said, Joseph, you've played your part in my divine plan. And now, Judah, you will step into the role that I have for you. It was never about Joseph, but it was about God's providence for the salvation of the world that he chose to go through Judah and ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. So why Judah? Why did God choose the tribe of Judah? Well, no one can really give a definite answer. There are some theories out there of why. But why does God choose any of us? Certainly not on the basis of our own uh, our own righteousness. We, we might be tempted to say, well, of course God didn't choose Reuben or Simeon or Levi. They did some wicked things. Well, Joseph himself was no saint either. If you know the story of Joseph, you know he kind of dealt with issues of arrogance and pride sometimes. You know, why does God choose any of us? And I'm sure Judah was wondering this very thing as Jacob started to, to started in on the blessing that God had for him. We read there in verse 8, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Now, Judah was the last born to Leah, uh, Jacob's wife. And the name Judah means praise. And so it's kind of a play on words here. He's like, praise your brothers shall praise you. Praise your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son, your father's son shall bow down before you. Now that phrase would be fully realized more so in the reign of King David, who was from also from the tribe of Judah, the youngest in the family, but yet he was anointed king of Israel, and his father and his brothers will bow down to him as king. Then we go on in verse, on, verse 9. Judah is a lion's cub from the prey. My son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion, as a lioness who dares rouse him. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. A tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Here we see the royal line established uh, through Judah as the, all the eventual kings, you know, we've been studying through the books of First and Second Kings. Well, all those, all those kings, they all came from the tribe of Judah. And the promise that the scepter would not depart from Judah was reiterated when the prophet Nathan visited King David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 16. And, and Nathan prophesied to David saying, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And the way that would happen, of course, would be through the Messiah, the consoler, the comforter of Israel, the promised savior, the one who would be called the son of David. And this is laid out for us there at the end of verse 10. Until tribute comes to him and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Now, some of your translations say, or it's in the, the liner notes there, it says, until Shiloh comes, until Shiloh comes. And in our English language, there's so many ways to understand this word and this, this phrase here. Well, Shiloh means tranquility, or it means rest. You could read here, until the peaceable one or the peacemaker comes, or the entire phrase could read, until he shall come to whom the scepter, the dominion, belongs. But however you slice it, this is one of the key verses that was on the minds of the religious leaders 
of Jesus' time as they looked for the Messiah, the Consoler of Israel. They knew this verse. Even today, they are waiting for Shiloh, for the peacemaker, for the one who will take up that scepter. But we know that Jesus has come. We know that he is already here. We know him as Jesus. And you, you know, Simeon, who we read about there at the beginning, there in Luke chapter 2, the, the beginning of our message, after he dedicated Jesus there in the temple, I just think in my mind, he probably went back to his room and he pulled out the scroll. And he went in the margin there and he said, Shiloh has come. You know, the consoler. This, that's been fulfilled. The consoler of Israel is here. The promise of a savior is fulfilled. I think Revelation 5, 5 says it best. Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, Jesus, the promised Savior, worthy is the lamb that was slain. Now we could leave it there today and rejoice with Simeon and rejoice with Anna in Luke chapter 2, or we could rejoice with the angels in heaven in Revelation 5. Rejoice that God keeps his promises. The promised Savior came. We can rejoice in that. And aren't you grateful this morning that God keeps his promises? But I do want to leave you with an insight into the heart of God today, something that we all probably know. But at least for me, as I prepared this week, it was reestablished in my heart in a more profound way. And I really feel this is a word for us today. And it revolves around our sermon title called The Last Shall Become First. And, and it all started when I was reading at the end of Genesis chapter 49, where we read that Jacob wanted to be buried with his wife Leah. Now Rachel had, his other wife, had long since died. She died in childbirth, giving birth to Benjamin. And if you remember the saga surrounding Jacob and, and his marriage to these two women, you know that Leah was definitely not the one who was loved. She was always second best in that relationship. She was not the one that Jacob worked seven years for, for his uncle Laban, and then seven years more so that he could marry Rachel. And then he was ultimately tricked into marrying Leah. She was definitely not the one that was loved in that relationship. But I found it very interesting that at the end of his life, Jacob asked to be buried with Leah and not Rachel. Even more than that, the Messiah would not come from the womb of Rachel, but the Messiah would come from the tribe of Judah, the last child that was born to Leah. The last shall become first. And that got me thinking. Jacob himself had been second to Esau. But God would bring the Messiah through the family of Jacob. And in Genesis 48, we, you know, we read there that Jacob like, switches his hands so that he could bless the younger of Joseph's two sons, Ephraim, instead of Manasseh, ultimately giving the blessing of the birthright to the younger over the older. And we can read that in chapter 48, that Joseph, he was not very happy about that. The last became first. What about King David, the youngest in the family, the runt of the litter? You know, what a scene that was when, when Samuel came to anoint the next king of Israel. And it was going to be one of Jesse's sons. And he's going from son to son to son. And God's like, no, not the one. No, not the one. He gets to the end. He's like, do you have any more sons? God said, it's one of your sons. Jesse's like, well, we got David. He's out there in the field with the sheep. Sam is like, call him in here. They bring David in. And Samuel dumps the anointing oil on David. It's not like a secret thing. They like 
dump a flask of oil, it runs down your face. It would have been a spectacle. It would have been unmistakable to the other brothers that David is the new king. Yet Jesus would be, be called the son of David. The last became first. What about the town where Jesus was born? Micah 5.2 tells us, But you, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Clearly speaking of the Messiah. The last became first. And what about Nazareth, where Jesus grew up? You know the story in John 1, verse 46, about Nathaniel. One of the disciples, Philip, calls Nathaniel and says, hey, you need to come see Jesus of Nazareth. And Nathaniel says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip says, well, come on and see. Jesus would then obliterate the long-standing traditions of worship and ceremony and share the very heart of God for his people with an adulterous woman at the well in Samaria in John chapter 4. She would then take that and she would go preach the gospel to her village. An amazing story of redemption. And let's not forget about the disciples. What was God even thinking there? The A apostles? You know, more like the B apostles. You know, 12 dysfunctional individuals who, who would be transformed, filled with the Spirit, and turn the world upside down for the gospel. What an amazing redemptive story. The last shall become first. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 1, 27. Epic verse for us all to think on and know in our hearts. 1 Corinthians 1, 27. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Amazing words. Remember those song lyrics we started with? We didn't see it coming, the story of redemption, what started in a manger, ended in an empty grave. Well, we've seen last week and we've seen this week that the promise of a Messiah was clearly spoken of in Scripture. But what we didn't see coming is that the promised Messiah came for you and came for me. We are those in Romans chapter 1 who chose not to even acknowledge God. Our sin put him on that cross. But God. But God in his promises. Don't you love that phrase in Romans? It comes over and over and over again. But God. We were this. But God. We are those that are second best, always passed over. From towns no one's ever heard of, doing jobs that no one really sees. We were lost in our sin. No eternal purpose. You know, as we sang in that song, I don't know if you saw that line, head full of rocks. Some of you caught that, you know. That was us not even acknowledging God, but Christ. But God, we, but in him we become part of that redemption story. You and I, by submitting our will to his, acknowledging our sin, our need for a savior, we now, we're now the reflection. We can become the reflection of his love, that fragrance of Christ to all we come in contact with so that many more might take part in the promises of God made possible through the redemption story that is Christmas. And our example is Jesus, who though he was in the form of, man, uh, form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, 
but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus became last so that we could become first this morning, that we could have a new name, that we could have a new nature, that we could no longer be called slaves, but sons and daughters of the living God, welcomed into the throne room of grace. He is our example. He is our Lord. He is the one that we boast in this morning. He is our promised Savior, Jesus. Amen. Amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.